Chapter 19 of The Secret of the Ninth Planet by Donald Wolheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Museum of Galactic Life. There were a number of structures laid out on the plain under the blue glow of Neptune. Burl saw that only one of them was a true building, and the design he had come to know was that of an ancient Plutonian temple, except that it was far, far larger than any of the ruined shells he had seen on Pluto. The other structures turned out to be walls and pillars, arranged around the central building, evidently in relation to their religious significance. This main building, ornately decorated, was windowless, and several closed doors represented metallic and forbidding barriers. It must have covered thirty acres, rising about thirty feet from the ground. As Burl frantically examined it, the leaders of the Neptunians moved discreetly with him. They gestured at the doors, indicating their own inability to open them. Apparently they thought that Burl might succeed where they had failed. Burl wasn't sure he could. He supposed there might be controls similar to those that released him from the dome, but he thought first he had better determine a plan of action. Somewhere within, Russ was sealed up, an exhibit among the living dead of many planets. He managed to convey this thought to the three stickmen. There was an unmistakable nod of assent from one of them, and a twig-like arm indicated that Burl should follow him. They rapidly crossed the area to the outlying fringes of a frigid-plasmic forest. Here, towering crystalline masses pushed up from the dark ground. It seemed to be a weird jumble of broken glass, broken glass ten and fifteen feet high. The Neptunians led Burl into this amazing landscape through a narrow path. He walked behind them, feeling thick and heavy in comparison with their fragile bodies. But, in spite of appearances, they were not fragile, nor were the growths that made up the fantastic Neptune transplanted vegetation of Triton. They came to a clearing amid the forest of blue and green and orange crystals, and there were the rest of the Neptunian survivors. Burl counted about forty, rooted in pools of liquid gas, absorbing renewed energy while waiting for commands. As he entered the clearing, most of them lifted their root tentacles and crowded around him. He was as strange a being to them, helmeted and bundled in plastic and rubber and metal, as they seemed to him. Burl noticed many of them must have been wounded. There were signs of missing arms or burned roots, and a few had odd poultices smeared over their round blue heads. The Neptunian commander pointed out their store of arms. They had long spears of some glistening, translucent substance, a projector which fired darts of the same material, and a number of plutonian globe-and-rod instruments, obviously captured from the enemy. He examined some of the spears and darts, and a suspicion he had held on first seeing them was confirmed. They were made of ice. On Neptune, ice was easily obtained, and hard enough to be worked like metal, its melting point being far, far above any heat likely outside of a Neptunian laboratory and it was as permanent as iron for their needs. Burl studied the captured plutonian hand-weapons, 
and was pleased to have one of the Neptunian soldiers pick up one and demonstrate how it was fired. It had apparently simpler controls than most plutonian products, for it easily blazed forth a bolt of electronic fire that blasted a tall crystalline tree to shards. The Neptunian leader began to gesture again and conveyed a burl that they wanted to attack as soon as possible. He gathered that conditions on Triton were not the best for these people, that their ability to hold out was limited, and that they desired to make their final assault without delay. They wanted to know now what Burl could contribute. Burl realized that as far as he was concerned, he was not in any better shape than his allies. His oxygen tanks were slowly but surely emptying. He examined his gauges and was startled to see he had only two more hours before suffocation would set in. The suit was warmed by batteries, which would last several days longer, but by that time it would be too late. Somewhere inside his suit he had a pocket knife, but he could not get at it in the frigid near airlessness of the outer surface. His holster still hung at his side, but it was empty. There was nothing to do then but to join the Neptunian assault. He would try to open the door by the electronic charge that still remained in his body. If he did, then they could break in and do what they could. If he could not, who knew what would happen? Burl picked up one of the plutonian weapons and gestured to the rest to prepare to attack. Immediately they fell into orderly ranks. They were indeed soldiers. Burl thought the cream of their planet's armies, whatever that meant in terrestrial terms. Then, following the lead of the Neptunian captain, they marched out of the forest. As they crossed the open plain, Burl knew that they were probably in sight of the defenders. But he realized quickly that that had been true when he was released and nothing had happened. So perhaps he was wrong. Perhaps the Plutonians were limited. Perhaps they had not bothered to keep a watch. That left only the Plutonian spaceships to worry about. Burl hastily searched the sky and located two glowing spots, four really, undoubtedly two of the double-sphere ships. The Neptunians behind bumped into him. Then the whole column came to a halt. Burl pointed to the ships. The commander waved his arms helplessly. They had been there all along. Burl gathered, and what could he do about it? More gestures. Yes, the ships were dangerous. In fact, they had been the ones that had defeated the main Neptunian attack, blasted them from the sky, and destroyed the ship in which the Stickmen army had arrived. The Neptunians were going to attack regardless. Again Burl realized the essentially suicidal mood that moved these beings. They were attacking against odds before which they were utterly helpless. Even as Burl stared at the far-off lights of the Plutonian ships, he noticed them swing away, moving off toward the horizon. As he watched, he thought for an instant that something else blinked like a star far in the distance. Struck by a sudden thought, he activated his helmet radio. Burl Denning calling the Magellan. He spoke at maximum power into his throat mic, calling the Magellan. If you can hear me, reply. Then to his joy, a faint, faraway voice answered. 
Burl Denning, this is Lockhart. Give us your location. Lockhart, there are two Pluto ships approaching you from the direction in which you can hear my voice. Be careful. The voice came faintly again. We see them. We'll take care of them. Haines made it back to the ship. The Pluto base is destroyed. There are only those two ships left. We followed them here as fast as we could. Can you hold out until we draw them out and crack them? We will need a little time. Burl called. Don't worry about me. Go to it. Russ may be alive in their building here. Don't bomb it. I'm going to try to get in. Okay, called Lockhart's voice, already growing weak as the Magellan and the two pursuing foes drew away. Burl turned to the Neptunian captain. He drew his hand across the sky to show that the ships had gone, drawn away from their protection of the temple. He pointed at the walls of the building with a let's go gesture. Burl noticed that though the Neptunians were apparently featureless, he could sense a distinct tightening up in their actions. They were tensed, ready for the final battle. They marched up to the main door of the temple. The captain loosed a bolt of electronic fire at it, but it left no mark. There was no sound from within. Evidently the Plutonians were either busy about their own business or did not regard the Neptunians as worth their attention. In a covered panel right next to the door, Burl found the typical sun-tap controls. He tried to work them, but they would not function through his gloves. He hesitated, knowing that removing his glove this time might prove very risky. Then he hastily drew off his left gauntlet and the thin nylon glove that was the inner protection of his suit. He placed his hand on the control. The icy cold bit into it. He twisted, the control worked, and he tore his hand away, replacing the gloves. The door slid open. Burl ran inside, followed by a half a dozen Neptunians. They were in a small antechamber, evidently an airlock. The Neptunians, leaping with excitement, did not bother to activate the inner door, which would have meant closing the outer door. Instead, they attacked it with heavy ice axes. The strange tools, chilled to a hardness unthinkable on earth, bit into the fragile plastic. After a few hard blows, the plastic split, and there was a small explosion as the air within the temple burst through. A gale of escaping gases roared through the little chamber, ripping the rest of the door to shards and hurling the Neptunians right and left. Outside, the flow began to congeal, and a thin snow of liquid air began to fall. When the blast subsided after several minutes, the Neptunians jumped up, shook off the new gas snow, and charged through the doorway into the temple itself. Burl held his plutonium flashgun at the ready. Inside, they found chaos and disaster. In the great rooms and halls, plutonians writhed on the floors, in the last throes of suffocation and freezing, now that the air had been ripped from their stronghold. The walls bore brilliant paintings and sharply defined sculptures. Advancing with the ranks of stick men, Burl caught glimpses of strange scenes on distant planets, of landscapes that must have been Pluto at one time, beneath the double sun that probably was its original parent. 
Burl became faintly aware of a distant clanging. Not all the air was gone, he thought. It must be pouring out in some slower volume as the pressure diminished. Somewhere an alarm was ringing. The Neptunians fell behind. He saw now that the floors and walls of the temple were still too hot for them. They began to withdraw, regrouping, blazing away with ice darts and spears at the Plutonians who had appeared in hastily donned space garments. Burl fired, then plunged on. He had to get to the hall where Russ was imprisoned. Finally, he was out of sight and sound of the Neptunians and their adversaries. Behind him, a door swung down. He was nearing the heart of the building now. The remaining Plutonians were sealing it off, rallying for their final defense. He was now cut off from support, but he still counted on confusion and surprise to aid him. He ran down a long hall to a vast central chamber and arrived a split second before the door slammed shut after him. The Museum of Galactic Life. It was a huge hall, oval in shape. In its center was a block that might be an altar, lining the walls on each side, ranging from the great door on the far end to the equally ornate one through which Burl had come, were floor-to-ceiling niches with gently curved transparent fronts. He could see dark shapes standing motionless within each of these exhibition cases. There were also about two dozen Plutonians in the hall, most of them grouped around the central altar. They wore gaudy harnesses and carried sharp, sword-like wands. Two of them started for Burl, and he leveled his weapon and fired. There was a flash of light, and one of the creatures dropped senseless. The other turned and scuttled away, uttering barking cries. Burl glanced hastily around. The rest of the Plutonians, priests or curators or executioners, whatever they were, advanced slowly on Burl. He couldn't get them all, but he'd try. He fired it again. This time the weapon failed to go off. Its charge was used up. The Plutonians yelped with delight and pressed forward, flourishing their swords. Burl desperately hurled a globe and rod at them, meanwhile looking around for a new weapon. But he saw only the shining glass fronts of the exhibits. In the nearest case was a man-like being, dark purple in color, a thing with a fixed but intelligent stare in its slanted yellow eyes. It had two tall ears, a wide chest, and a curling tail, and was wearing a belt with pouches and a short kilt that only about half covered his two long, hairy legs. Burl spun on his heel, swooped upon the gleaming sword-like wand that had fallen from the dead Plutonian, and racing back to the exhibit, brought it up with all his might against a transparent surface. The glassy stuff cracked. Another blow with all the strength of an earth-muscled body on a light-gravity world, and the front shattered open. There was a puff of greenish gas. The creature inside suddenly blinked and moved a hand. Then, without waiting, Burl dashed to the next exhibit and swung his metal sword again. The barking calls of the Plutonians increased in frenzy, and they charged him, screaming. As the second exhibit crashed open, Burl turned to fend off his attackers, swinging his sword. 
It clashed against the sword of the nearest curator-priest, who slipped and went bowling over against his fellows. Burl reached the third exhibit and smashed it. He turned to meet a renewed attack, and this time, out of the corner of his eye, he saw that a purple humanoid was in action beside him. The purple one had picked up a plutonian, apparently with great ease, and was using its body as a bludgeon. Something furry and green leaped high in the air and came down in the middle of the plutonians. There was a wild, unearthly screech as it landed, and exhibit number two from heaven knew what starry world was in the fray. Now Burl found himself momentarily unhampered, and rapidly he opened exhibit after exhibit. The battle became wilder and fiercer, as star being after star being joined in. The Plutonians swung away in all directions with their wands. Their barking voices were drowned out by a rising chorus of sounds, roaring, inhuman voices, calling curses in languages of worlds that lay many light-years distant, wild bird-like calls from a winged being whose intelligent eyes and wide brow belied the ferocity of its beaked and taloned attack. There was a clanking, ringing sound, as a thing of half-jointed shining metal, half-soft velvety white flesh, whirled among the foe, doing damage with a razor-edged arm that shot out from the metallic part of its body. There was something like a cloud of insects, a mad thing, which seemed to be a single hive of tiny winged cells that moved and bit and stood its ground like a single united beam. There was a Martian that had at first stood stupidly, as if unaware of what was going on, and then had gone berserk at the first sight of a Plutonian running past him. And in the next case was Russ, still spacesuited, staring out through the glass. With a joyous crash, Burl smashed the front of the niche. Russ moved, his eyes opening wide as he saw Burl. He reached down quickly and picked up the helmet which had been taken from his head. As soon as he had it in place, he activated the phones. Wow! his voice came in Burl's earphones loud and clear. Let's go! He jumped down and grabbed Burl. Together, the two danced a wild jig of joy. Then they both remembered the Plutonians and turned, realizing that they had momentarily left themselves wide open to attack. But there was nothing to be afraid of. The Plutonians were all torn, beaten, lifeless. Moving among them were their former victims, the exhibits gathered from worlds undreamed of by human astronomers. What hopes of vengeance had been stored in those inhuman hearts when each had been torn from his native world, had been caught in helpless paralysis, and carried trillions of miles across trackless space as living trophies. Although their forms were many and strange, there seemed to be no fear of one another among the survivors. What they had been through had united them forever. One by one they began to gather round Burl and Russ, recognizing in them their saviors, grateful for their delivery. Burl's helmet radio spoke up. The Magellan calling Burl Denning. We have eliminated the last two enemy ships. Give us your location. We intend to A-bomb the installations on Triton as soon as we can pick you up. 
Burl spoke into the phone. Hold up the explosions, Colonel. We've taken the place intact. You can land the Magellan outside the main temple and come and see. We've got allies, lots of them. Yes, said Russ into his phone. We've got the secret of Pluto. We've got a friendly fellow world on Neptune. And we have a whole crowd of the strangest refugees you'll ever hope to see. Bring extra spacesuits with you. We have the makings here of friendship and trade with dozens of distant star planets, a treasure in itself worth a dozen trips around the solar system. Burl looked around him, thoughtful at these words. Visions of the marvels that future A.G. ships would find, as manned by earthly crews and carrying each star being back to its galactic world, they opened up on each planet new vistas of achievement, science, and artistic marvel. He found himself staring into the yellow eyes of the big purple humanoid. His hand was grasped by the other's strangely shaped hand, while a yellow, powdery creature, like a human moth, tried to touch Burl in fondness. Burl smiled widely and began to grasp the proffered tentacles, pincers, and grippers. Welcome, he said to them all. Welcome to the solar system. We've got a lot to talk about. End of chapter 19. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. End of The Secret of the Ninth Planet by Donald Walheim.